we have returned to 2 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. And I'll read them as as we go this time. There's a lot of them. (laughs) But before we get into God's word, let us together beseech the Lord and his guidance and understanding as we study his word. Father, we thank you so much for this, the Lord's day, in which we can gather together as your people to hear from you, to praise you, to worship you, to have fellowship and communion with you. I pray, God, that as we consider David and his son Absalom, that we would, Lord, consider our own lives, our own um, leadership our, in, our, in our homes and in the business place, uh, in our places of work, Lord, as parents, as mothers and fathers, and masters and servants, we would consider our own lives in light of what we will hear today, and that you would show us, Lord, where we are committing sins of omission and commission, Lord, that we may repent of them and turn to Christ and be healed. We thank you and we praise you for um, your word, and we pray all this in the name of your Son, and amen. Well, as we used to do um, in in the court, court of law, one of the first things you do after the judge enters the room is, that, is you read the um, laws that have been violated. You read the accusation. And I'm going to be honest with you, Absalom's rap sheet is getting pretty long. But I would like to just simply review the crimes that he has at this, up to this point committed. Absalom's rap sheet is huge. and starts with the fact that he is simply a disobedient son. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and to all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, this always sounds extraordinarily harsh to us. Now, I will say one of the things about this that people don't usually understand is the fact that the father has to bring the son to the city, or to the officials of the city, and they will decide rather to pass judgment. And actually what's going on here is what they're avoiding what was very common in those days is the, that fathers would discipline themselves and, and kill their own children. So actually, what actually sounds really harsh is actually a protection on the side of the state to protect Israelite children from overzealous parents. Now, most people don't know that. And I, I, it, that's deep in a Rush Dooney book, let me tell you that I read that. But um, it was very, very common for fathers who were the heads of their households, this tribalism that you see in the Old Testament, to take the law into their own hands. Um, now, that being said, it teaches us an important principle. It's something that fathers must think about. We're not just teaching children to obey our authority. We're teaching them to obey authority. And if a child is not going to obey their father, are they going to obey the magistrate? Are they going to obey their boss? Are they going to right, look at our culture now, and you tell me that the proof is not in the pudding. The other thing here is what is God's will for Absalom? What does God think of Absalom's actions? Well, if, if you apply the word of God in this case, God believes that they should take Absalom and stone him to death. But that's not all. Absalom is also a sexual pervert. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11. 
If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So now we have two counts of capital crime. But we go on, because he's not just a private person, right? David's not just a private person. Romans chapter 13, verses 2 through 5. <laughs> now, we've heard a lot about this in the last few years. And believe it or not, I'm going the other direction. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So now what we have is a a disobedient son. We have a, a rapist. We have a murderer. We have a man who's rebelling against the state. Now, what does God want in each of these counts? He would like the life of Absalom. Absalom has forfeited his life. But what is David going to do? David is in exile. David is gathering an army. David is trying to salvage what he he can of Israel. What is he going to do? That's what I want to talk about today. What he does and doesn't do, hopefully we reflect upon that and, and consider what we are doing and not doing in our own lives. Now, one interesting point here is that Ushai's plot was successful. What he wanted was to give David enough breathing room to get out into the wilderness, to gather an army, to get organized, to get supplies, and that clearly has worked. Okay, so Because now what we're going to do is we're going to turn to 2 Samuel 18 and just look at verse 1 and 2, and we'll see that the plot has worked. David is out in the, in the wilderness preparing his people, but preparing them for what? Right? God's word is clear here. God's obe- obeying the word is very clear what he ought to do. What is David going to do 18 verses 1 and 2 then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds and David sent out the army one third under the command of Joab one third under the command of Abishai the son of Zariah Joab's brother and one third under the command of Hittai the Gittite and the king said to them I myself also go with you now bada bing bada boom Right? He's, he's got a big army. He's dividing it in thirds. And unlike the time where he was standing, taking a siesta on the roof, when the rest of the army goes out to the field, David is ready to go with them. And I have to say, verse 1 and 2 is a good start. David's heart is in the right place. He's, this is what repentance looks like, because real repentance is changing your behavior. David is ready to change his behavior. But furthermore, there's typological purpose to this three-pronged army. This is not the first time that we've seen this. David here is organizing his troops. He's recalling to mind his tactical genius of, of his bygone years. And, and what he's doing is dividing the army into three, which in Exodus chapter 18 is exactly how God divides Israel. If you recall, Abraham won his victory by dividing into three. But he's not alone. Gideon... The judge also divided his army into three. So right at the start of the story, there's all kinds of positive reinforcement of who David is and what he's doing. And it appears to be a good start. Okay? If, if you ever want to win a victory, I mean, the odds on you doing it through splitting your army into three, pillar, or three columns is, is a good one. <laughs> right? It seems to work pretty frequently in the Bible. 
it does depend exactly on what you do with the three columns, but this is something that is, has um, a long history in Israel. And, and famous generals throughout time have used the same tactic, and it almost always works. But this good start doesn't last long. Because David has, has said, I'm going to go with you guys. But his army has a, a, a few things to say in response. So now I will read verses 3 through 5. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Now David's intention to lead the army into battle does not meet with the consent of his troops. Now, my, But my question is, who's king? Who's king? Are they the king? Why is it that he acquiesces to their request? Now, I'm going to state that the, the counsel that he receives is wise. The problem is the fact that he states it in this way. Oh, whatever seems good to you guys. Now, kids, imagine for a moment if it's dinner time and you're like, you know what, I'm hungry, Mom. She's like, you know, do whatever seems right in your own eyes. How quickly would you be eating ice cream for dinner? How quickly? Right? I, even might even, I, I might even eat ice cream for dinner if my wife said do what's right in your own eyes. Okay, now husbands. Your wife comes to you and says, you know what, the car is a little, a little small. It's a little small. We, we need a bigger one. And you say, ah, whatever. Whatever seems good to you, go for it. Now, some of us have very wise wives. Well, actually, maybe this... This metaphor doesn't work as much. There's too many wives. No, it doesn't work. See, Kale's down here. She's like the troops. She's like, no, I don't give my consent to this metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) But imagine if a husband in some massive decision that the wife had to make just said, whatever you want to do. What would we think of such a man? Likewise, a husband comes to his wife and says, you know what? I think I'm going to take up this hobby. Oh, what's the hobby? Uh, I'm going to collect all the Glocks. Every single one of them, in every model. And she's like, ah, you know, whatever seems good to you, right? Now, some of us see Jared's very excited back there. He may actually already have done this one. The point that I'm trying to make is that we, we think of things, think. People in leadership, your boss, your mom, your dad, your wife, your husband, your pastor. Imagine if people asked me if they should go to church on Sunday, and I was like, ah, whatever seems good to you. What would we think of such leaders? And so David, who goes from, dis, like, very direct, very clear decision-making, very quickly becomes an abdicator. Now, abdicating is something that comes very naturally to us, right? God comes down to the garden after they've eaten the apple, and he says, hey, Adam, what's going on? And, And the first thing that Adam says is, well, it's the woman, the wife, it's her fault that you gave me. So it's her fault and your fault that I'm doing this. This is what we want. We want to give the responsibility away to someone else. Now, David, the desire of his heart is good and right, and and he ought to take counsel. There's nothing wrong with taking counsel. Wise leaders take counsel. You say, okay, what do you think, wife? What do you, like, I get the kids around the table, and I say, hey, we're thinking about making this major decision. What do you guys think? And I have teenage sons now who give excellent advice. 
But what I don't do then at the end is say, okay, you know what? The responsibility is all of yours. Everyone who I asked for advice, I now put the responsibility on all of you. That, no, that's terrible leadership. So David, for, for a blink of an eye, is on the right path, but he quickly now, where before on the roof, he's committing sins of, of um, commission. Sorry. He's doing things he knows he ought not to do. That's what has got him here in this position. But we see that his mind is, is, is cloudy. His judgment is cloudy. And his sins of commission have given way to sins of omission. Eh, whatever. And it gets even worse because there, right, now he's the impotent king standing there just observing all the warriors going out to battle. And right as they're going out, an army to fight, the last thing he says to them is, oh, hey, by the way, be gentle to my son. Now, you can be a merciful army. You can be an army that's just. You can be an army that doesn't leave, like Sherman in in the Civil War, a a, a hundred-mile-wide path of destruction and, and fire as you're marching towards the enemy. You can be a just and merciful army, but armies are not gentle. It's, it, it goes against the very nature of an army. And so you say, hey, army, you got your, did you sharpen your spears? You guys have enough arrows? Yeah, do you have some chariots? Excellent. Okay, now go and be very gentle with those. And, and it says, it makes a point, all common soldiers hear what he says. And so do you think those soldiers are thinking, David wants the head of Absalom. David wants us to to go and get that one guy so that this whole thing is over with, so that everything can be restored as it was. He can bring peace and prosperity back to Israel if we just go out and slaughter this one man. Right? That was the wisdom that Absalom was given. Well, just go and kill David, and what you'll do is you'll have less destruction and less death. And this whole thing will be over with quickly. That was the way of wisdom. What David is doing now is confusing everyone. He's first leaving it to them to decide what he does and doesn't do. That's abdication. And now what he's doing is confusing everyone. And very quickly, what we see is that this lack of decision-making causes a great deal of destruction. A great deal of destruction. If you go to verse 6... It says, so the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Okay, we'll come back to Tolkien's forest army in a second. But what does it say right out of the gate? Well, the army goes out. They fight in a forest, which is a smart thing to do. Because when, when you're fighting in a forest, you're, you're like the, amount of, the fact that you have a greater number in your army than David's army, you, you neutralize that fact. Because fighting in forests is hard. This is why uh, George Washington was so successful and the colonialists. Because um, the armies were very used to standing out in an open field and shooting at each other in groups. And <laughs> we learned from the Native Americans, you know what? You kill a lot more when you hide behind a tree. Right? That's like the famous, famous thing that we figured out very quickly. Well, it's the same thing here. Right? Go fight in the forest. Now, there's more to it than that, but we'll come back to it. But how many Israelites die? 20,000. So instead of offering up one guilty sinner, one guilty rebel, one uh, rebellious son, kill him and you bring peace to Israel, what David would rather do is now sacrifice the lives of 20,000 innocent Israelites in order to save his son. 
Now, what did Abraham do? God says, Abraham, hey, take, I, this is your beloved son, I know, I know. And if you love me and you want to serve me, take him up onto the hill and sacrifice him. Right? And what does it, what does it say there? It's, he rose early the next morning. He rose early the next morning. Now, the God, uh, the God of heaven, he looks down on, on this rebellious people. And does he think, you know what I'm going to do? I can't possibly send my son down there because then he might die. What I'm going to do is sacrifice 20 million people, 20 gazillion trillion people in order to save my one son. No, God says, you know what? I'm going to send my boy down there and he is going to die so that I can save all of those people. David is doing the opposite of Abraham. He's doing the opposite of Yahweh himself. David is not himself at this point. His, his sins uh, that he has committed, his murder that he has committed, the adultery that he has committed, the fact that he did not discipline his children in the, in the various stories. You've got a rapist, you've got a murderer, you've got all this stuff going on. He refuses to take action. Absalom comes back. It's neither peace nor is it open war. And through all of this indecision now, who suffers? His house has suffered. Don't get me wrong. But now 20,000 men are lying dead in the field and what about their wives? What about their children? What about their communities? What about whatever job they had when they were li- wherever they were living in those communities? So his failure to make an, a, a direct decision has now cost all of this extra destruction. And we know it's true, right? Husbands, fathers, when we dither, what happens? Now, okay, I highly doubt anyone here has dithered and caused 20,000 people to die. Okay, if you had, come see me after the service because I'll take you into the FBI. Just kidding. <laughs> right? But what happens? You know, when we don't make a decisive decision, when we sow confusion amongst the people who are following us, what ends up happening? Pain, suffering, unnecessary destruction. And this is what David has done. First, he's deciding solidly on the side of his flesh with all the sins. And now what he's doing is, right, his decisions, because they weren't for Christ and they weren't for God's law and they weren't for righteousness, has caused death and destruction. And now what we're seeing is that his indecision is doing just as much damage. Because what does God want from us? God says, listen, I set before you today life and death. And in in that, does he say, you know, there's a fuzzy middle ground there that I'm really hoping you all land on? No, and and they repeat it in the New Testament. As long as it is called today, what are you supposed to do? Obey the word of God. Now, I'm going to leave all that for a second because I'm sorry to say it gets worse. To talk for a moment (laughs) about this army of trees. Because the Hebrew is actually not, it's not vague, it's not uncertain. It says that the trees devour. It says that the trees eat. That's the word in Hebrew. The trees actually eat people. So the trees are eating and destroying more people than sword and spear. Now, what I love about moments like this is that it's a real test of us and our modern materialistic idolatry. Because we're modern people who who have a lot of trouble with the spiritual world. There aren't spirits. There's not a spiritual realm. Everything's materialistic. I can explain everything through science, right? And, and we, even if you're sitting there and you think, no, I, I, don't, I don't think that, you think that more than you realize. 
Because you hear a story like this, and I say, well, what happened is actually the trees killed more people than the soldiers. And even when I was saying this, I was like, how far do I really go with this? Because I sound like an idiot. I do. I sound like an idiot. And it, and it sounds like the kind of idiot, like we put a guy in a tomb, and then he came back to life. And if you don't stop and think about it, you're like, <laughs> right? I'm willing very easily to be like, ah, no, miracles, no, no, no. But, oh, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead because it was for me. Right? There, there's some miracles we, we take a little bit more. Right? Yeah, yeah, of course. He has a cattle on a thousand hills. He can give me stuff. So in Numbers chapter 16, verses 31 to 32, we read of another account where, God, where, where the, the natural world joins God to fight his enemies. Numbers chapter 16. It says, As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So there God is judging people who are sinners, and, and, and no, nobody is doing anything about it. Nobody's taking justice in their own hands. The earth itself swall- swallows them, it says. And we're like, oh, that's a cute metaphor. Now let's get some archaeologists and go out there and find out, oh, there's like salt or sand pits or something that they fell in. I'm sure there's like a swamp. I'm sure there's like a natural explanation. We go out there, we dig down far enough. There's going to be something from nature and its automatic way of working that is going to explain what happened. Because we can't possibly have a god who would literally kill us with a forest. Especially if you live in Pacific Northwest, that idea is a little frightening. What do you mean he fights us with trees now? But if you th- right, think of the manna, think of the quail flocks, think of the lion's den, think of Jonah's whale, think of Job's whirlwind, think of Jesus quieting a storm, right? The natural world is on God's side, and it, and it obeys him more readily, more cheerfully, and more fully than man does. Because if he wanted to open up the earth below us right now and swallow us, it would happen. If suddenly we walked out of the car and we couldn't get there because the trees were trying to kill us, if that pleased him, they'd do it. Right? If the sun got close enough to the earth to fry our faces off because it pleased the Lord Jesus, it would do it. And, and, and in the middle of this whole story, right, you've got this, this dithering king, you've got this confused army, but in the middle of it, you have these obedient trees. Who's like, you know what God wants is this man to die. Right? He wants this army to be destroyed. And, and David could have spared everyone from this by simply being more decisive and saying, hey, wherever Absalom is, This is an order that's been given time out of mind. Press the fight directly to where the leader is, and you kill the leader, you strike the shepherd, and the sheep will flee. That's what happens every time. But now God has got to to get the trees in on the action because he can't find an obedient servant anywhere. Now, what's fascinating, even on top of this, this is where Tolkien got the idea, by the way. Because in two towers, there is an army that marches down and swallows up all the orcs. And people are like, man, Tolkien is so clever. And I'm like, yeah, so is God. Anyway. <laughs> so the trees know exactly who they're trying to get. So if you, if you turn back to Second Samuel 18, you go to verse 9. If I can find it in all my scribbling. Oh, there it is. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? 
Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. A belt. We'll come back to the belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Now that is what I call decisive, right? That's decisive action. In the hide-and-seek battle that's going on here, fighting in these woods, Absalom comes face-to-face with danger from some of David's troops, Right, who are watching this royal mule walk around in the woods with Absalom upon it. And the words used by the soldier to report Absalom's condition are of great theological and thematic significance. How does he find Absalom? Absalom was hanging in an oak tree. Absalom had rebelled against divine law by rebelling against his, uh, his father and sleeping with his father's concubines. The great tree, inanimate though it is, has proved more than a match for the pride of Absalom. Because remember, what was Absalom's pride? What did he, he take a great deal of pride in? His glorious hair. Remember, he used to cut it and weigh it. He used to go on the cover of Time magazine. He was always the sexiest man alive. And he would be like, look at these flowing locks. And he would be like, let's weigh it. And then, hey, did somebody want some? Right? And he took a great deal of, of pride in this hair. And God is like, listen, I, David, David is not doing what he's supposed to. So through this oak, the oak reaches out and in some fashion, because it does not explain, grabs hold of him by this glorious hair on his head. His crown is his downfall. Absalom was hanging between heaven and earth. He's suspended. He is rejected by earth, and he is rejected by heaven. Now, hanging in a tree, rejected by both heaven and earth, the royal mule runs off. According to Deuteronomy 21-23, one who is hung on a tree is the curse of God. To be hung on a tree is to be cursed by God. So can you think of anybody else in the scriptures who is suspended between heaven and earth who is rejected by both? Well, that was a rhetorical question, but yes, Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Okay, who did we just read? There was a man who rebelled against King David, and he saw that the plan wasn't going to work, and what did he do? He hung himself and was suspended there between heaven and earth because he was rejected by both. Judas Iscariot hung himself from a tree. Why? Because he was rejected by both heaven and earth. This is what David needed to do from the start, and he was unwilling to do it. And so God says, listen, this is a story I don't get tired of telling, but we will, in fact, sacrifice the prince. We will suspend this man between heaven and earth, and both will reject him so that we can bring bring peace and prosperity and glory and goodness to Israel. God's like, watch me work. Watch me. Right? And everybody, and this is how the Old Testament works, people don't get it, because how long later... We're told in Galatians chapter 3, what? what? What of the Son of God himself, the Messiah of the Lord, finally comes. The Son of David comes. And where David himself wouldn't do it to his son, God in heaven will, heaven will do it to his son. It says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I will kill this one prince, I will suspend him between heaven and earth, and what I will do is bring peace not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles as well. And this is what, you can, even, even characters like Absalom can't help it, it's still a story about Jesus. And because either you're a story of Jesus because in some small measure you're allowed to reflect his glory and goodness, or in some very real and very large sense, you're the anti-type of Jesus. But even Absalom, even cursed Absalom is blessed enough to, to be a type of Christ in this story. Even he, suspended there between heaven and earth, can't help but being a witness to the true and living God. Now, I just want to stop for a moment and consider that in, its, in, in all of its <laughs> glory, in all of its complexity. There is no way that you cannot glorify God, even if you hate him, even if you're a rebel, even if you deserve to die. Every person on this earth will at one point come out of the ground, and we, everyone will, no matter what they thought in, in their their life on earth will realize who Jesus actually is and everyone will declare he is in fact the king everyone will glorify him and then there will be a great separation but he wins life wins love wins grace wins and it, it, it is humbling that even somebody like Absalom would be used in this way now the older ordinary soldier who comes with this story, is admirable in many respects. He speaks very plainly to a general, which I don't know if you guys remember much about Joab, but if I were a soldier in Israel, I don't think I would talk to Joab in this fashion. He says, what, what am I supposed to do? Right? What am I supposed to do? You are Joab. we got David as king. we got leaders who don't know the left hand from the right. We're, we're, we're being led by a bunch of sinners. I'm out here, and what do you want me to do? Not for a thousand pieces of silver would I rebel against the king. Well, in this case, rebelling against the king would have been actually obeying God. And Joab, again, Joab, Joab is going to be the one who brings peace and prosperity back to Israel because he, he becomes himself the general leading the army of David. He becomes a rebel and he rebels against his king. But in doing so, he obeys the Lord and does exactly what the Lord wants. And this common soldier, you feel his pain. What is he going to do? And this is what happens to the people in our care when we will not simply make a decision. When we either make decisions for our flesh like David had or refuse to make any kind of decisive decision when it comes to fighting the enemies of God. We stand there in the doorway in between and people can neither get in or out. By the way, a belt is actually, it's, it's how you give people a promotion. So the belt signifies it's something you wear on the outside of your armor. So you would have given 10 pieces of silver and a belt. I think it's important to note that it's not 30 pieces of silver. I think that that actually is an important detail because if it was 30 pieces of silver, I'd be a little more confused. But Joab knows exactly what he ought to do and does it. Now, what's also funny is you can tell from the story up to this point, how does David react when you raise your hand against people that he doesn't think you should have raised your hand against? He doesn't like it. Okay? When you come back and you tell him that you killed somebody and you're like, hey, I killed this guy, woo! David doesn't always respond the way you think he's going to. So Joab here shows how clever he really is. He stabs him three times in the heart with a javelin and then gets ten other guys 
And they all start hacking away at him because later in a court you'd be like, well, I'm not really sure who killed him. Who, who killed him, David says. I don't know. I don't know. There's so many of us. <laughs> and this is how firing squads work. So there's so many people in a firing squad because nobody wants to have it on their conscience that they were the one that shot the guy. But then what started happening is you would have 20 people firing at somebody and everyone would miss because nobody wants to be the guy. So then what they do, actually, in a, in a firing squad now, modern firing squads, unless, you know, it's World War II, but that's another story, is you typically have like 20 guys with rifles and three of them have rounds and the other 17 have blanks and nobody actually knows who did it. But you actually, it's very effective. You don't know who did it. So you can be an executioner for the king and not even know. And in this sense, Joab is covering himself because later when David is going to react the way he thinks David is going to react, nobody's really sure who killed him or not. It was the tree, David, I don't know. Now, Joab saw Absalom return, remember? Joab said, hey, we need to bring Absalom back and you need to make peace with him and we need to figure all this out. But did David make peace with Absalom? They kissed, but they didn't make peace. Absalom was running around burning down Joab's fields and tried to get his attention. He's not a man of peace. He has kissed the son, but failed to secure true and lasting peace with the son. And now 20,000 soldiers are dead. And, And what we see is the inaction of the king has now moved down to the soldier. Because think, if the soldiers thought, if we just kill Absalom, this is over with, they didn't do that. They don't know, they don't want to do that. So what they're going to do is they're running around killing each other now. And they're going to kill as many people as they can to make the thing stop. And they end up killing 20,000 of their brothers because nobody wants to bring themselves to do the thing that needs to be done. And, th- and this commonly is what happens in families, churches, businesses, the Christian church generally speaking. You have all this unnecessary destruction, all this waste of supplies, all this confusion because there, there isn't somebody who's just going to stand up like Joab and be like, you know what we need to do is just stab this guy in the heart. Or this problem in the heart, <laughs> right? Because it's it, it's very rarely where I'm like, all right, guys, follow me, and we go down to the city square and we stab some dude in the heart. That's not usually how we deal with problems. But the metaphor works. Who goes right at the heart of the problem? No, what we we are. It is an age of effeminate men who will not simply stand up and make a decision, and 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 we're we're suffering from all kinds of things. We are a bloated people. We are an indecisive people. We are soy boys from top to bottom, and it is hard to find a few good men who will simply stand up and be like, you know what, here is what we're going to do. And everybody hears that, and they're like, it's a call to action. And what did COVID prove? COVID proved that those people who would stand up and say, this is what we're going to do, follow me, those people are thriving, and those families who follow them are thriving, those communities are thriving, and the other ones who, who dithered the entire time, all three years, some are still dithering, what is going on to them? What's happening? Christian men, Christian parents, Christian bosses, elders and deacons, Christian men in communities, what we need to do are be a people who, unlike David, don't choose our flesh, and unlike David, will stand up and not confuse everyone, but simply say, this is what we're going to do, this is the direction we're going, follow me. Now, the conclusion of the whole matter is found in verses 16 to 18. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them, 
And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. And that just fills my heart with sadness. Someone who started off with so much advantage, with such a father and such a position in the kingdom, he writes to those who are given much, much is required of them. And Absalom was given a great deal. And the only thing that bears his name now is a heap of stones that very soon, if you don't know anything about this, uh, the way heaps of stones work, I I remember visiting the farm that my father grew up on. And I remember we're walking out on the edge of the field, and and he says, see these hills here? I say, these hills? Yeah, okay, I see them. I was like 10. He goes, we made these hills. I was like, come on, Dad. Right? I know that you guys make food come out of the ground, which seemed magical. But what do you mean you just make hills? Well, what, what the hills were, were the, all the stones his, his father and grandfather had taken from the field and put into these giant piles, but then eventually looked like grassy hills on the side of the field. And so Ab- Absalom here is going to be buried under a pile of stones that in a generation or two is simply just going to look like a pleasant hill. And the only other stone that bears, the, the only other stone that exists for his benefit is one that just has his name on it. He had sons. It told us in 2 Samuel 14. He had two sons. What happened to them? What happened to them? We don't know. But something happened to them, and now all he's got is a pile of stones and a pillar to remember him. And one of those things will not remember him for long. It is a sad ending. right? God said, be fruitful and multiply. And here is Absalom, who, who started with so much, and, and he is lying under a pile of stones in a pit, and no one remembers him, and, and his death is more joyous to them than his life. And, and this, is what, right, this is what happens to people who, who defy God, who hate his law, who God judges. What, their, their death is more joyous to, the beloved, to those who love God than their life is. Now, which do you want to be? Right? Today, you're going to make a choice. You're going to make a choice, but all that's left of you is a pile of stones that in a generation will be a grass heap. Right? Or, or you're going to obey, obey God and be fruitful. Now, in fruitfulness, as I always tell people in premarriage counseling, does not simply mean the womb. Because right, the, Absalom is not exactly surrounded by the only wise person that was helping him hanged himself. Right? It's not exactly like following Absalom led to life and prosperity and blessing from heaven. We either obey God and are fruitful and obedient, decisive, lead from the front kind of people, or right through sins of commission and omission, unrepentant, what eventually happens to us is, is all that, that anyone will ever remember of us is the headstone. Now, I love visiting graveyards. I love to see where people are going to come up out of the ground on Resurrection Day, actually. Some people, like George Washington, is going to have a wonderful view. When he comes out, if you ever, want to, if you ever think about this, stand at the top of a headstone and look at what everyone's going to see when they come out of the ground. It's amazing. Please bury me on Whidbey Island over Evie's Landing. That would be the most glorious place to see the Son of Heaven come back. But so often when I'm in those graveyards, I wonder, is this all there is left of these people's names? 
I kind of want to go and find a phone book and see, are, are any of these people still here? Or like, and I think of Absalom in that pillar, right, in the Valley of Kings. He clearly aspired to a great deal to put a pillar for himself in the Valley of Kings. Seems a little pretentious to me, right? He put it there. And he thought, you know, this, I'm going to make a name for myself because he didn't think much of himself. And it shows how sad his life was. He didn't think much of himself or what was going to happen to him because he made a pillar with his name on it. His sons were dead. He's a rebel and a rapist and a murderer and and, and full of vengeance. And he dies in an ignominious way, killed by a tree. And whose fault ultimately is it? Who's produced this young man? Who's set this young man, right? Who, who, who set his sails and sent him out into the world? And this is why the word of God is something that we need to look into, like James says, and when we walk away, not forget what we see there. Because Absalom was trained by David. David, like Eli, he's, not, he's worse than Saul. Like Eli, he didn't deal with his children the way they ought to. He's not making decisions that he, he's supposed to make to, to put them in, on the right path. And he is making decisions for his flesh and not for the good of the kingdom. And, and Absalom sees that and says, I can do better than that. Right? Remember? Remember in Genesis, there's that guy who comes after Cain. And he's like, ah, Cain? Cain's got nothing on me. And, and he's got two wives. And he talks about how some young man strikes him on the face and he kills he, he, he makes a joke out of the murder. He makes a joke out of the sin. He makes a joke out of the fact that I can do better than Cain. And sons of Satan are always this way. Watch me work. Right? Let me get in there. Absalom, now, is like Achan. That's what he's become. And it, whose fault is it? It's David's. It's David's fault. Joshua chapter 7, verse 25, 26. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acre. Joshua eight twenty nine, And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Now, fathers, mothers, leaders, if you want to produce the kind of disciples that lie under piles of stone, where their death is more joyous to us than their life, all you've got to do is do what David does. Stay home and have a siesta when everybody else is going out to fight. Take whatever woman you want, and when, when the, and when that works out right in a particular way, not to your liking, just murder the husband. Right? Just commit whatever sin you want. And then later, when, when you're starting to sort of get back on track, right, you, what you'll find, when, if you try to correct, right, w- without going all the way with it, What you will find later on is that now you've seared your conscience and you're unable to make proper decisions because there is a moral aspect of wisdom and thinking and epistemology and it's not just simply a functioning brain that works apart from the spiritual world. Our spirits, our hearts, our minds, it's all connected. And and this this is one of those sermons where this is a lot for the younger men. Right? There's a lot in here for you younger dads. 
for younger men who are hoping to get into the discipleship. How do you make disciples? What you do is today, I choose the Lord. Today, me and my house, what we will follow is the Lord. You make this decisive decision. But what we will do is find out what God's will is, and that is what we will do. And it's not a mystery because he has written it down for us right here. And then when it comes time to make a decision, you're not going to say, oh, you know, whatever seems good to you. You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy this gun, but I'm going to use it gently. Right? I mean, (laughs) you see the decisions that David is making and not making along the way that create a son like Absalom. Now, some of us, some of us, because I have a father uh, who, who only has two kids who go to church on a regular basis. Okay? He was very late in life when he was con- himself, I believe, truly converted. And, and one of the things I counsel him about all the time is a sermon like this would weigh very heavy on him because he would feel like, you know, he missed the boat. There's nothing he can do. And, and my counsel to my own father is the counsel that I will give to all of the older men here who have sons who may or may not have turned out like Absalom. And that is that the Lord God feels your pain. He knows that heartache of a cursed son hanging between heaven and earth. And he did that, he did that to give you hope. He did that so that you would know that at whatever cost to you, whatever cost to your children, whatever cost to God himself, he will save us. He will redeem us. And, and like Augustine's mother, right? she used to pray every day that Augustine would be converted. And he was a hellion. Augustine, I don't know if most people know this. But her bishop came to her because she was struggling, because she'd been praying for decades. Please, God, deliver my son. And she comes to her bishop and says, listen, I don't think it's doing anything. I think it, it's totally worthless. And he said, listen, any woman, any woman, any mother who comes to God with tears like these, her prayers, there is no way that he will not answer them. And and we think that that, you might as well have an army of trees. Because we don't believe in the God of miracles. Now, if we believed in the God who fights by opening up the earth to swallow people, who sends even trees into, right? If we thought that we served a God who did the impossible, if if we knew that we served a God who would sacrifice his own son to save yours, if we believed in that God, if we sought that God, if we devoted ourselves to that God, if we prayed to that God, will he not hear us? Will he not understand us? Will he not save us? Will he not save our children? Because you are here now, why? Right? How much of a train wreck were you? I'll be frank. How much of a train wreck are you still? If you're anything like me, you were a big train wreck. And you're still a train wreck. And yet here we are. Why? Because there was one who deserved life, who was life himself. And he, he was there, suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by both, so that you too could be here. And if, if that's possible... If you're here, then you should believe in miracles. And it it should inform the way that we pray, the way that we talk about these things, the way that we make decisions. Because who, why would we devote ourselves to any other God? Why would we follow anyone else? Why would we devote ourselves to anything else but him and his kingdom that comes the way he wills, he desires? Through what? Through self-sacrifice, through prayer, right? Through the supernatural... (laughs) overcoming the natural. Right? You, you were in Adam, and now you're in Christ. 
And you may have children who you're not sure about or children you're worried about. But the only thing that overcomes the natural is the supernatural. And you serve a God who uses tree armies. And, 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 the, and that's the gospel, right? Because his son hung on a tree, and it's now the tree of life. So, of course, he, he uses trees in his warfare against the enemy. Now, I, I'm not even going to ask you, because I don't want to put it on you. I'm not, I'm not going to put it on you in a, in a way that is unnecessarily difficult. I'm going to say, believe on him. Believe him. Believe in the God of miracles. Believe in the God of resurrection. Believe in the God... Right, who is the one who controls everything in this world. Believe in him. Pray to him. Seek him. If you want wisdom, ask him. He'll give it to you. Do you want life? He'll give that to you too. Do you want, do you want hope? He has plenty. Do you feel cursed? Well, there is, his son was cursed for you. And so turn that, just go to him. Do you not know? If, are you standing in the doorway and you have decisions to make? Go to him. Are you, are you sitting there on the roof and, you, and you're looking across and you're seeing the hot babe taking a bath and you're pretty tempted to just murder anybody you got to to get at her? Go to him. He will deliver you. He will deliver you from whatever assails you. And what he has put before you today, what he has put before you tomorrow, what he has put before you every day of your life is this, life and death. It's decisive. He said, follow me and you will have life. Pray to me and I will hear you. Devote yourself to me and you will find that I am devoted to you. He's not indecisive. He's not uncertain. And so repent of your sins. And like Job in Job chapter 1 verse 5, repent of the sins of your children, even those that they may have committed. Turn to God, seek his wisdom, seek his face, and you will find that, that he, is, he is risen and he is shining down upon you in ways that you could hardly imagine. It's miraculous. And amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord God, that you sent your son to die on our behalf, Lord. You willingly sacrificed your son that you might save rebels and rapists and sexually perverted people, sinners all the way through. God, you are a merciful and gracious God. And we ourselves are full of uncertainty and doubt and unbelief. We, we are double-minded. Lord, our hands are weak. Our minds are weak. Our hearts are weak. But yours, your heart is strong. Your hands are strong. Your mind is strong. Your will is strong, Lord. And I pray that you would be merciful to us all and that we would submit willingly and cheerfully to you and your will and obey you in all things. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son. And amen.